Welcome back to Camden Cast, your unofficial Baltimore Orioles podcast from CamdenChat.com. We are recording on April the 12th, 2012, and I am your host, Mark Brown, Eat More SK on Camden Chat, and my podcasting partner in crime, as always, is along for the ride, Andrew Gibson. How's it going tonight, Andrew? I'm perfectly well. You know, the Orioles can't lose tonight. So. The Orioles cannot lose tonight. We are recording on an off night, and... Uh, well, they lost the last three nights, and really there was some ridiculous uh, confluence of events, and I'm just going to launch right into that rant, because I don't know if you, our listeners, saw this, but there was an article that was posted to the Baltimore Sun website uh, during the course of last night's game, meant for Thursday's paper, I guess, meant for Wednesday, or during Wednesday night's game, I should say. And it was from a columnist, Kevin Coward, and the headline of the article was, Orioles fans should give Greg and Reynolds another chance. And as fate would have it, uh, Kevin Gregg ended up being the losing pitcher in the game during which that article was posted online, having given up that two-run home run to Nick Swisher in the top of the 10th inning. And I was just extremely... I found that whole thing very ridiculous. That, that for one, why is this guy telling us to give Kevin Gregg another chance? Because, honestly, there was the whole 2011 season where he had plenty of chances and was bad in a lot of them. And I just found that that whole sequence of things very, very, really ridiculous. Uh, I read the article in question. And uh, his argument seemed to center on Kevin Gregg was really good in 2010 for the Toronto Blue Jays. And the only proof that was handed down was he saved 37 games for the Blue Jays, which is a terrible argument. I mean, he did not convince me even remotely that at any point in his career, Kevin Gregg was good at relief pitching plus the fact that it's sort of you know why does he care if Kevin Gray gets booed or not if he pitches well you know people are gonna forgive whatever it is they're holding against him and that is the one thing he has really failed to do on the other hand I'm not sure I completely understand kind of the overriding, overwhelming uh, wave of hate going out at Kevin Gregg. Right. Kevin Gregg, of course, was probably the only player that got even remotely booed on opening day during the player introductions. And, well, that's probably because he rubs fans just the wrong way with his results and then his attitude about his results, like saying things like uh, when he gave up that home run to Jorge Posada last April when Jorge Posada was hitting like 150 and saying he had to do a lot of things right to hit that ball out of there at this point in his career. Mm -hmm. Or saying things like, I guess you haven't acquired my taste for pitching yet. Well, I certainly still haven't. Did he offer a uh, fun excuse for giving up a home run to Nick Swisher. I didn't last even night. look, honestly. I was just so just bummed that the game was lost and uh 
I, I really didn't even try and find out because it would have just annoyed me. And I mean, certainly it's not only Kevin Gregg's fault the Orioles lost that game. So in some sense, I'm being a little unfair just calling down such so. such hatred on Kevin Gregg just because he's an easy target. Like if you want to talk Adam Jones with his at-bat in the uh, bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded, which he recognized could have been better. I think on his Twitter account, he uh, berated himself and yeah. referred to, I'm not sure if he was just generally saying slap dick or if he was referring to himself as slap dick, but uh, either way, I think, think we need to make an ongoing thing out of that. Like instead of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's going to be Dr. Jones and Mr. Slap dick. And uh, whenever, wow. he messes, whenever he messes something <laughs> up, that's, that's that moment. Uh, yeah, it's like any game you lose or your team loses. Um, it's easy to point to one specific event and say, we lost because Kevin Gray gave up this home run. Or on Monday, we lost because Mark Reynolds booted this ground ball. Uh, but unfortunately, the nuances of the game and the reality of the game are such that any loss is almost always a confluence of many, many different things. Like the Orioles hitting, which all series long was not completely embarrassing, but very underwhelming against the Yankees. Uh, and that's, you know, just the nature of their offense. Right. It's not... It's not the uh, not going to win any records. Yeah. Well, not and any good records anyway. The defense was a little underwhelming also. And, again, that's just the nature of their position players. Tuesday night's game, 0 for 8 with runners in scoring position, which is just unfortunate for one night because, you know, right. what are you going to do? And then and, – Yeah, you can, you can point to oh. tons and tons of individual at-bats like um, – on Tuesday, J.J. Hardy came up in a big spot and popped up to to end a threat. I believe he had the bases loaded with two outs in the 10th or the 11th. Which is really just going to happen in baseball. If, because exactly. Because if you think about it, even like the best players ever, the very best players ever, are still going to fail like 60% of the time. And, you know, so, Nick Swisher's going to hit home runs off Pictures like Kevin Gray. Yep. That's what happens. Yep. And we've seen over the years tons and tons of mediocre relief pitchers. Tons. And none of them have really gotten the vitriol that Kevin Gray has received. So I have to think that it's because of his post-game comments that have gotten far too much play. And that's... Fair, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, leveling all of our criticisms in his direction is not fair. Because if he was pitching well and had that same attitude, you could probably spin it in a really good way as, oh, he's a bulldog, whatever that means. Yeah, he's got that closer mentality. He's uh, right. going to go out and get him and... You know, he wants to go out and show the other team who's boss. He's never going to give in to the hitters. 
Right. I mean, it's all Rebop, right? So. But is that enough to really go after him just because he's one of the worst players on the roster? And the same with, with Mark Reynolds, since uh, Kevin Coward decided to group them together. Also, right? also, we saw enough of Mark Reynolds to last year to decide, no, we don't want to see him at third base again. Right. Um, so, I mean, really, those guys are the easy targets. They're not the only ones to blame, but it's just like, I think it's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction well, you for, for me as, 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 a, as an Orioles blogger when a mainstream media writer is trying to tell me what the fans do think or should think. No, oh, yeah. just don't. Don't go yeah. there. And when we, we see this with the with the Mazin guys sometimes, just, you know, tell us what you want to say. That's fine. Don't tell us what we should think. And if you're going to tell us what we should think, at least don't use stupid arguments like, well, he had 37 saves in Toronto in 2010. Right. Make a more compelling argument. Well, he had a 1.39 whip in Toronto in 2010. He was lucky to get 37 saves. Um. This sort of reminds me, uh, the other day, must have been Monday morning, my boss came in, one of my bosses, and uh, I have a couple bobbleheads around my desk. I have Buck Showalter and Nick Markakis, and I have a little stuffed Oriole, and I always wear an Oriole hat at work or an article of clothing. And he said, this was Tuesday morning, actually, because he said he was out. Uh, in Newark the night before listening to the Yankee game on the radio and he said that he heard it's been 14 years since the Orioles had a winning season and he didn't even realize that oh that sounds like concern trolling to me I think I would no 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 I mean this my boss is one of the nicest guys I've probably ever met and I, I guess he grew up a Phillies fan Although he's very non-biased nowadays, uh, as you would need to be because he works with a bunch of these teams. Right. Um, he said he didn't he didn't realize it because when he was growing up and throughout most of his life, Baltimore was you know sort of the the prime franchise. Everybody wanted to be them. Uh, so like he still thinks of them sort of subconsciously as the great Orioles. Uh, and he said, then he thought about me and I'm 26, 14 years. That's all I know. All I know is really bad baseball. And he said, like he commended me on, on sticking with it. And I said, yeah, but you know, and this is getting to my point. Finally, I watch Masson and I read the sun. And a lot of the times, and this is, a me problem. It's not necessarily the writers. I feel like a rube when I'm reading them and listening to Jim Hunter and they're trying to tell me how everything's looking up all the time. And, you know, it just like every single article I see now and everything I hear, like I have this knee jerk reaction to just discount it immediately because I feel like they're trying to play me for a sucker. Is that fair? Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I really don't know if it's intentional, Andrew, or if it's just like their job is 
just easier if they're always spinning positive, you know? I just, I don't know, uh, I don't know. And, you know, to some extent, I guess there's always tension between outsider types like us and you sure. know, the people that actually get to do that for a living. Well, they do it and they get money doing it anyway. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm too, I'm too involved to really step back and say with an unbiased, uh, well, yeah, either, that is kind you know? of the problem, right? Like, I like to think I can be objective about myself, but I'm pretty involved in being an Orioles vlogger. So it's like, I don't know if it's this, uh, you know, am I being unfair or not? Who knows? And it's weird because I genuinely like probably 95% of the things I read and hear. I like, I like Gary Thorne. I like Jim Palmer. Both of those and guys. Yet, like, are... I listen to him talk, and I like, I end up just like muttering at the TV the whole time. So I don't know. Maybe it's made me an unpleasant person. That's what I really worry about, I guess, more than anything else. Well, Andrew, we'll just both have to have some effort to not be unpleasant people, I guess, and uh, and that way we won't be. So, okay. Well, that, that sounds good. All right. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, we, we are resolved. All right, so we've had enough ranting about Kevin Gregg and Mark Reynolds for tonight. And I forgot to mention this before now, but we have a guest on the podcast for tonight. He is joining us now. He is from our sister website, bluebirdbanter.com, the Toronto Blue Jays fan site on SB Nation. He also does a podcast for that site, and he's been a guest with us before. Johnny G, welcome back to Camden Cast. Thank you. Glad to be back. It is good to have you back. And, uh, well, the Orioles are playing the Blue Jays this weekend upcoming, so that's why we've got Johnny on here. So, Johnny, how about you give us a little rundown of Blue Jays' fan expectations for the 2012 season? Uh, you, you could say the expectations are a little bit across the board. There's a, there's a lot of hope going into the year with the extra wild card. Um, and there's still quite a few of us that thinks it's a tall task to even get into that second wild card spot. Um, uh, on our podcast alone, there was, uh, there was four of us on the podcast and I had picked about 88 wins. I think our, the head writer for our site picked 83 or 84 and then some of the other guys were slightly more optimistic uh picking 90 and 92 wins oh yeah and uh johnny it was just just like oh contrast we had three people on our podcast where we guessed the wins and our most optimistic was 75 between the three of us so yeah that's a pretty that's a pretty serious optimism from some of the toronto bloggers there and and I don't know if that's some the people have some blinders on and forget that it's Lowry's first year, um, or or just uh, the amount of youth that's on the team, which is which which is a good and bad. It's a double-edged sword. It's a good and bad thing, um, but. Uh, I, I think it, it had a lot to do with them looking across the division and looking at a couple holes that they see in Boston's Boston's team this year. Uh, and while Tampa and New York are going to be just as good as ever, that there's a lot of hope that maybe everything breaks right. You can always fall into that extra spot. Uh, I'm, yes. it, it's, uh, I, I'm kind of skeptical, but to each their own. This is all uh, sounding still very early familiar. In really yes, you know, does. if people have career years, if people have yeah. bounce back years. Uh, we had it last year where we're like, well, if Aaron Hill bounces back and Adam Lynn bounces back and and this happens and Davis proves he can beat it like an everyday outfielder, then then things will go well for us. And, of course, none of that stuff came true. So this year we have 
if Kelly Johnson can bounce back, if Kobe Rasmus can bounce back, if Adam Lynn can return to the one year that he had a couple years ago, which is looking even more unlikely every day. See, that's one of the all-time classic blunders, the most well-known of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia. (laughs) But counting on your guy who was an all-star several years ago to jump back to that form has to be right up there. It, it is, and, and I think uh, I think the patience is wearing on a lot of fans about Adam Lynn. But uh, on the other hand, he's on a very team-friendly deal, and it has, I think, like three option years at the end. So if things don't exactly work out or if he doesn't start to play a decent first base at this point, the team, I think, has one more year left on his contract, and then they can uh, kind of cut bait and just let it go. So, um, But if he, if he does start to turn around a little bit this year, uh, magically learns how to hit left-handed pitching, for instance, then they could pick up a couple of the options, too. So yeah, it's, so it's nice to have I've that. I just pulled up Adam Lynn's stats here just because I was curious to see what you were talking about. So I guess his good year was 2009. He had a he slash line slugger, of 305, yeah. 370 on base with a 562 slugging. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, and he won the silver slugger as a DH. And, and then in, like that. in 2010, he had a 287 on base percentage. And in 2011, yeah. he had a 295 on base percentage. Yeah. So, so, so he's one of the guys that uh, that that your 90 plus win predictors are going to need to have a bounce back to. Uh, pretty pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think a lot of the writings on the wall. I think a lot of people envision Jose Batista eventually moving to first base and Adam Lynn kind of ending up elsewhere at that point. But uh, you think Batista's going to go to first? Like, we, we had, like, how do you see, I guess, his defense playing out in right field? His his defense his defense is okay currently, um, but it's not spectacular. He does have a he does have a fantastic arm. I will give him that. Um, but just to, his range in the outfield isn't as great as it could be. And we've got a couple stellar prospects coming up through the system: uh, Jake Marzenik and Anthony Goss, who will probably push um, him out of right field and move him into the first base slot. Of course, in honor of your friend and ours, Buck Martinez, we have to call him Jose Bautista, right? Get that really... Every time I hear him do a home run call and I watch his video, I just hear, Jose Bautista! I I think he needed a longer spring training so far this year. There's been a few pop flies out to the outfield where he gets really excited and then goes, oh, it's dropping. Yeah, we get that with our radio (laughs) announcers. Just last night I was driving home and there was an Adam Jones fly ball and I was sitting there fist pumping in my car because our guy Fred Manfred's like, going, going, going. And then he just like faded out and he was like, caught. And I was like, you can't do that to me, man. Come on. Because usually I'm watching on TV so I can see for myself. So if they're faking me out, I'm like, no, I don't. At that time I was literally in the car. I had no visual. That was the worst fake out ever, so. Whatever. Announcers could always do better than they do, I guess. Well, everybody thinks they could be a baseball announcer, I guess. It's the real the real moral of that story. You know what? We, we've talked about this before. Sorry. We, we'd be absolutely happy having a TV feed with no announcers on it at all. Just stadium yes. sounds, crowd sounds. You, you have it, my friend. You have uh, it exactly right. I, I, I'd be really happy just watching something like that. Just to, just have Mike set up that you can hear some of the the, the crowd chanting and everything. I'd be, I'd be perfectly fine. I believe the Mets... They might still do it. A couple of years ago, they would do like the silent seventh inning, where their broadcasters would just go and give a snack, oh. and just leave it on broadcast. See, Andrew, or, that's, or that's really untapped potential because they could sponsor that inning and everything. Yeah. And 
and enhance the fan experience and give the broadcasters a rest and make some money. So I don't know why nobody's thought of that. Because every now and again, there's a game where there's like technical difficulties and you can hear the game sounds, but not the announcers Yeah. for just like an inning. And it's cool. But maybe we're the only ones who think that, or maybe maybe there's too many egos involved in, uh, in actually making that happen. Mm. What are you going to do? Not everybody's Vince Scully, I guess, is the story there. So as far as the baseball games coming up this weekend, Friday night's pitching matchup is Tommy Hunter, the quote-unquote number two starter for the Orioles, opposing Brandon Morrow, who, if I remember right, was traded from Seattle to Toronto. For Brandon, Brandon League. League, right? So what's the story yeah. with Brandon Morrow? Uh, Brandon Morrow, converted converted reliever from when he came over from Seattle. He's uh, been with the Blue Jays for a couple years now, and they converted him to a starter. And uh, Morrow's got the quote-unquote fantastic stuff. Um, he, he's, he, he throws hard. I think last year he averaged fat, uh, his average fastball was 93 miles per hour. Uh, he usually sits a little bit higher than that, but, uh, he, he can, he can throw really hard and he, his strikeout pitch is a slider, which he throws quite well. The problem that Morrow has, and Fangraphs did a post on this not too long ago, is, uh, he, he tends to leave a lot of people on base. His, his, uh, strand rate is, um, is not, is not very good. So, and when you look into that, look in kind of the reasons why, to be a starter, as most people know, you need kind of more than two pitches. You need more than just a fastball slider. A fastball slider will get you by as a great reliever, uh, not so good as a starter. And Morrow started to develop other pitches. He's got um, kind of a show-me-change type of thing, and he's got uh, – oh, what is it? He was developing a cutter in the offseason, but after the first game, I'm not too sure if – He's actually started to use it yet, or if PitchFX just didn't pick it up. Yeah, Fangraphs, um, I'm looking at his thing now, does not have any cutter for the first start, but of course no, Andrew and, can and tell and you I'm, that's not always right. But Well, no, uh, Fangraphs will get, they have two sources of uh, pitch classifications. One of them is PitchFX has an algorithm that is not very good and very unreliable. Sort of the first rule of doing pitch effects analysis is to discard that. And the other source is Baseball Info Solutions. Video scouts reclassify each pitch manually. Uh, so if he's throwing cutters, they probably would have picked up on it. All right. And if he's and, not, then he's not. Yeah, and, and like I said, the, the, uh, the talks were that he was learning that in the offseason. So I don't know, maybe if he hasn't started to... Uh, started to throw it yet but typically what happens is he has this change up and he's got a curveball that he just kind of throws every once in a while just to kind of show the batter uh, but he relies very heavily on his fastball and slider and when he gets people on base he basically drops the lower pitches because uh, obviously he feels more comfortable with his fastball and slider which is when he can get into kind of trouble um when he doesn't when when he isn't working with people on base he's very very dangerous because his strikeout pitch the slider is is very good yeah um, i'm looking at his stats and he had 203 strikeouts last year and 179 innings pitched that's ridiculous yeah he he's he's usually among the league leaders with uh, strikeouts per nine um orioles so fans what... wish we could see a strikeout <laughs> pitcher like that like i don't even know if there's a guy on the roster we could dream of having a strikeout ratio that high I, and i know 
when he's on, he's fantastic to watch. He almost threw a no-hitter, I believe it was last year, uh, where he ended up going eight and two-thirds without giving up a hit. And then it was a soft liner to uh, – and ended up being Aaron Hill in the in short right field. He dove oh, better. Oh, the irony. Yeah, it, was, it, it, it wasn't it was Hill's fault. Dove, he made the catch. He just couldn't come up with the ball. It was just – it was – right in the hole so but other than that i think that game he had something like 17 strikeouts or something ridiculous like it was just when he's on he's fantastic the problem is uh things can kind of unravel fairly quickly with him and i know i joked last year calling him the jekyll and hyde because it was there was some starts he'd come out and walk four or five people and everything just kind of went to pot right away um but uh he can strike out a lot of people and you would think that would help us let left on base because if he gets into trouble he could just strike people out but he tends to uh, forget about his lower pitches, and people tend to lock in on the fastballs. Well, the Orioles just struck out 37 times in the three games against the Yankees that they just played, so that's probably uh, probably a good omen for Brandon Morrow. Who... And, and, and not only that, the two pitchers that are coming up behind him both throw kind of hard and both kind of rely on the strikeout as well. Oh. Alvarez, not as much as Drayback, but... Strayback does as well. So I guess the question for Andrew and I would be, how many strikeouts is Chris Davis going to have in the next three games? My God, all of them. Could Yeah, could could he strike out like 12 times in three games? Well, let's see. I forgot uh, you guys had Davis and Reynolds, too. Wow. Morrow is right-handed, right? Yeah. Uh, Alvarez and Drayback are... Right-handed right? as well. Are they both right-handed? Yes. So Davis will play all of those games... <laughs> Because he has been sitting against lefties, so yeah, he could get a ton and ton, ton of strikeouts. Yeah, the only the, the only lefty we, we're running with a four man rotation at the moment. Uh, sorry, I say we're. I do that all the time. Uh, the Jays are running with a four man rotation at the moment, but you uh, you guys will miss Ricky Romero since he just finished the Red Sox series. So very fantastically, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess if there's a guy to miss, it's probably Ricky Romero, the guy we'd yeah. want to miss anyway. So Henderson, Alvarez, and Kyle Drabeck are also hard throwers, huh? Yeah, Alvarez last year, his fastball was uh, average. Granted, he had he had many or much fewer starts than the than everyone else on the staff. He came up kind of midway through the year. Wow, he's twenty one uh, years old. He's turning he he's turning twenty two next Wednesday. Wow. Yeah, and so uh, his fastball averaged just under, just a hair under Brandon Morrow's. Um, the the difference with Alvarez is he uh, he does have a, a great slider, uh, but he does throw his change up a lot more than uh, Brandon Morrow does. So Al- Alvarez has kind of been brought up traditionally as like the three-pitch type starter. So he does have a little bit more to work with. Uh, his first start out this year, he only had two strikeouts. It was against... Um, it was against the, the, the Red Sox on opening day, and unfortunately the bullpen blew the game for him, but he went seven strong against the Red Sox and looked and looked pretty good. I think he only gave up three or four hits or something like that. Um, Alvarez is, is, is a personal favorite of mine. He, he's got a really smooth throwing motion and just throws hard, and I have a fondness for guys that can miss bats, and he tends to miss a lot of bats with the way he throws his fastball and can spot it when he's on, of course. Everybody, chicks dig strikeouts almost as much as they dig the <laughs> long ball, I would have to figure. So you, so you mentioned the bullpen blowing a game there, so I was just curious, does the Toronto sports media always talk every year about how, oh, the bullpen is going to be a strength for the Blue Jays, because Andrew and I talk about this sometimes. Every year we get the, the Orioles guys trying to tell us, well, the bullpen's really going to be a strength this year. Um, then, last you know, year... It's not... <laughs> Last year, our, our bullpen's been almost completely remodeled from what it was last year. Uh, last year, our bullpen 
featured the likes of John Roch and Francisco, uh, Frank Francisco, uh, anchoring the bullpen. And while Francisco finished the year strong, um, it wasn't a great bullpen, and we ended up trading away a lot of pieces to it, some to the Cardinals and the Kobe Rasmus deal. I think you could have had um, Mike Napoli instead of Frank Francisco. Does that ever get I know. you? Uh, does that ever get uh, you? That- that that's uh, that's the I think that's the one trade people look back on and and kind of go ooh that's the the really one big miss and everyone everyone really likes a lot of the stuff our GM does mm-hmm. um, but I think that was the one miss that everyone had and I, I just kind of let it go at this point because I don't know I, I, he was traded because we had J P and C B coming up there was and we had Adam Lind and Edwin Encarnacion going to be playing first base in D H so it would have been a revolving door between all of them. And obviously, with the year Napoli had, he would have run away with a starting position at some point or another. But at the time, I couldn't really fault him for making trade. We needed another uh, bullpen arm, and Francisco looked like a fantastic arm coming in return. Yeah, who could have really uh, fan- known Mike Napoli was going to do what he did last year? That was uh, yeah, it was it was of, kind of insane. Is and, that and it, it does sting, but trying to think of it rationally, which is hard to do. Is that uh, because, like you said, Alex Anthopoulos? has been uh, really great up there. Kind of, I guess, uh, the next big deal in GMs. Uh, And I would assume a lot of Blue Jay fans are super happy with what he's done. Yeah, uh, people follow him and cheer for him just about as much as they cheer for the players at this point. Um, he's, He's been a really... Uh, familiar face. You see him. You see him a lot in the media and, and everything else. Uh, but he's really he's been really tight lipped when it comes to trades. Like every trade that he's made has kind of come out of left field. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody saw the like. Uh, I remember there was people on our site talking about trading for Colby Rasmus at the beginning of last year because of everything that was going on in St. Louis. And I just kind of sat there and laughed and went, "There's no way. There's no way. Look, who would we trade? A bunch of relievers." And sure enough, that's what he ended up and doing. Corey Patterson. Trading, and Corey Patterson. And Corey Patterson. And Corey Patterson. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, but that's, and, uh, that's World Series ring winning Corey Patterson now, so we have I, to show I, I a little and, bit more respect. Yeah, and to be fair, and, and Zepchinski and Dotel helped, uh, helped the Cardinals immensely down the stretch with an improved bullpen. Uh, but still, I would still make that deal every day of the week. I, I, I like Rasmus, and I think when you get a chance to get a player of that talent for a bunch of players that are on expiring contracts and are relievers, the only real prospect that they gave up was Zach Stewart to Chicago to get Edwin Jackson back in that deal mm-hmm. to flip to the Cardinals as well. He That was really the only permanent piece. Everything else, we ended up getting Jason Fraser back as one of the other relievers that we traded as well. So, I just think this year um, the Blue Jays could trade for like Logan Morrison when he offends the Marlins with a tweet for the last time. That, that could be we, your we, one to eyeball for this year. Uh, we, we, there's There's been running jokes and hashtags on Twitter and stuff that the Blue Jays are playing instead of Moneyball. It's Jerkball now. Just give us, give us all the players that everyone else hates as long as they can play baseball. We don't care. Right, so, because we, uh, the, the first guy in that mold was, you know, Escobar, right? Yep. And he's been fantastic for us. So Yeah, does he, like he had, like you said, the Jerkball reputation in Atlanta. Has he done anything at all to... We were talking about Kevin Gregg earlier, sort of pissing us off just by being Kevin Gregg in post-game interviews. Like, has there been any sort of attitude from, you know, Escobar or anything? Not outwards, not that anyone can see. I've never heard of any problem. I think Escobar fits in a little nicer in uh, in Toronto than he did in, in Atlanta. He has Jose Batista. He has Jay Pierre His other uh, Spanish-speaking people, and it, 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 there, there's more... Um, 
I just I think he feels more comfortable. Um, and it's 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 kind of a funny thing to say, but it's it's just fun to watch him play. He always has the biggest grin on his face after he makes a diving play or anything like that. He just has it looks like he's having a lot of fun. But there's been no attitude issues or anything else. Uh, for, frankly, the, from uh, the general feeling that we get from our blog is that it was Chipper Jones didn't like him over mm-hmm. in Atlanta, and that was that was pretty much the deal. As like it, either him or Chipper, and they're not going to get rid of Chipper Jones at this point. So. It was well. He gets shown the door, and we're we're perfectly happy to have him. We, yeah, I, I he's like a great player. Lucky if you can pick up a guy of that caliber like that. So since we're talking about the Toronto front office, I am just uh, wondering: Were you excited that Tony Lacava did not get hired by the Orioles? Would that have been a huge loss to the Toronto front office, or do you really even know what he does? Just we we actually we actually had an interview with him. Our uh, whoa, the head writer for the site had an interview with Tony LaCava not too long Andrew, ago. Andrew, can you imagine anybody in the Orioles front office interviewing any blog? Yes, I can. Really? Because that happened uh, during one of the media nights. That's right. Stacy talked and, to uh, another talked that to Matt Buntag, That's right. Who's now with the Angels? But it wasn't like a one-on-one phone call. Like, oh yeah, didn't he? Didn't he like? Um, Tony LaCava called to talk yeah, about prospects. Tom. That's so crazy to me. Yeah, and so 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 that was cool. And and uh, he tends to as as far as I can get, like who knows behind closed doors or anything like that. But he tends to focus a lot more on the prospect side of things. And so, well, and anytime you lose a member of the front office, where the front office at the moment seems to be working quite well together and doing good things, it would it would have hurt to see him go. But I couldn't fault him if he would have got a GM job somewhere else, type of thing. Well. Lucky for you, it wasn't meant to be in Baltimore for reasons that I suspect every reporter knows, but none of them will actually <laughs> write about or say. Perhaps something to do with ownership? Well, um, that's certainly the big theory. Yeah. Mm. Sort of uh, continuing on this train of thought, you've been talking like Alex Anthopoulos has been visible in the yeah. media. And you've talked to Tony LaCava and so on and so on. I get the sense that just in general, the front office in Toronto is a lot more, I don't want to say transparent because it's not fair or, or accurate, but a lot more, I guess, welcoming of trying to get their message out, for, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. I would it. say engaging, maybe. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the, the, it. I guess it kind of depends on the situation. Like they have an annual state of the franchise event where they hold it at the dome, and um, the season ticket holders get to come down. This year, they invited a lot of the mainstream bloggers to come down, um, just come down and basically gave them press passes to come in and sit on the state of the franchise. And that's when uh, Paul Beeston, which is the club's president, Alex Anthopoulos, and a couple other front office people basically sit down in chairs in front of season ticket holders and field questions for a while. Um, and uh, they invited bloggers to come along this time. They're they're doing. I, it seems like they're trying to do a lot more to involve uh, fans. They have a lot more tweeting. They what do they call them? Tweeting Tuesdays and try to be a little bit more interactive at at the Rogers Center. So so that's good. But I wouldn't exactly call them transparent. Like I mentioned earlier, they're notoriously yeah. type type lit tight lipped when it comes to different things. And there's definitely things they could have handled better, such as you Darvish in the off season. That was that really could have been handled better. 
like going into the offseason, there was a lot of Toronto fans ba- begging to sign Prince Fielder or, or Albert Pools or somebody. Um, we we needed one big bat in our lineup or we needed another big bat in our lineup. And they uh, they were very upfront saying, look, this basically not going to happen. Like we, we have we have set limits. We're not going to go over a certain term for guys, which was basically a way of saying don't think about it because there's no way somebody like Prince Fielder is going to sign for I think the cap that they put on was six or seven years or something like that. So did you um, personally ever feel like you, Darvish, you might win the uh, win the bidding up there? Oh, yes, yes. It was – there was a lot of talk, and on the one night that it was going to get released, there was a few reports that had come out that said Toronto had won. Yeah, I remember uh, seeing that, and – some somebody really had some egg on their face, I guess. Yeah, because and and it was actually it was actually a reporter. I can't remember who it was, but yeah, it it didn't go over too well. And there was a lot of people in Toronto. There was uh, Anthopolis himself had gone over to scout two or three of Darvish's starts, um, and it was one of those things where we looked at our rotation and went, okay, well, we need a pitcher, and how how often can you get a pitcher seemingly of Darvish's um, pedigree or of uh, experience? just for money basically it just doesn't happen so there was a lot of thought that we were going that it was going to happen and who knows at this point like the for the week leading up to it uh all we heard from the mainstream media was uh well nobody knows nobody knows exactly who bid what of course it's all a closed bidding process anyway so there's no way anybody could know so any of the rumors that are coming out saying toronto bid 50 million 45 million it's all bunk don't believe any of it uh nobody knows for sure and then as soon as the bidding came out that Texas had won with a bid of 51.1, if I remember correctly, or something along those lines, all of a sudden um, people in Toronto started saying, oh, Toronto's bid wasn't even close. I'm like, just for the past couple of weeks, you were telling us don't believe anything that you guys tell us when it comes to these things. And now because it's come out, you think you have the right answer now? I don't know. It was just... Didn't it come out eventually that the Blue Jays bid was like 50 million? So they really were so very close. I, I heard I heard a couple different things. I heard fifty million. I also heard that it wasn't even close. Like yeah. it was like on, on a, a token twenty million or something like that. Um, I don't either which way. And then of course then you get the people on our site, unfortunately. And I think it'll be the same anywhere that don't quite understand the bidding process. And we had to explain it a few times. Where what do you mean they wouldn't bid an extra million dollars? That's ridiculous. Stupid cheap Rogers owners and all that stuff. And like right, really oh, no, they bl- they wouldn't have known. <laughs> No, it's Just a blind, blind bid process. Yeah. You, you write down your number, seal the envelope, and away you go, and hope you win type of thing. Well, I so. don't even think the Orioles bid one dollar on you, Darvish. So uh, you were you were closer than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that one kind of stung. I think that was it was around that point, and then stories really started to turn ugly in uh, in the city. I think that's what I mean when I say that they could have handled it better. They didn't handle the media backlash or manage any expectations about that very well. They stayed so quiet that it really built up fans' expectations, and when it didn't happen, the kind of the lid blew off. So that kind of makes me wonder. Maybe they were disappointed in the outcome of it too. I think so too, and that was my logic behind it. Was look, if they had only put in a token bid, they would have done something to manage fan expectations, and people go, "Well, how come you know that?" I'm like, "Well, because they did it for Prince Fielder and and Albert Pujols. They came out at the start of the se- at the start of the off season and and laid out some ground rules that basically said you can think about it, but it's not going to happen. And if they really didn't think they'd put in a competitive bid for Darvish, I think they would have done roughly the same thing. The fact that they stayed silent makes me think that they put in what they believed was a competitive bid. And it's better to have that 
managing of expectations than have an offseason of, say, John Heyman writing, oh, well, the Orioles are laying in the weeds for uh, Prince Fielder up in here. It's like, or Manny Ramirez. Or, oh. Yeah. I was just thinking, because like, Dan Duquette's managing of expectations about Manny Ramirez is uh, not what I would call an art form. Well, anytime he was asked about it, he would just start laughing uncomfortably. Because I like, because I actually got to listen to a conference call after the Orioles traded Jeremy Guthrie, and somebody on the conference call asked if he was interested in Manny Ramirez, and then there was just like there was probably ten to fifteen seconds of silence. It was the longest pause on the whole conference call, and then when he finally started saying something, he just like was like laughing uncomfortably. It's like, <laughs> well, Manny is a great player. We got to see if he'd be a fit on this ball club and blah, blah, blah. Dan Duquette. Dan Duquette's thing is he calls everybody like, well, he's a real qualified major league player. He's a dependable player. That's like what he says about every everybody he signs. Mm. Trades for uh, well, it, it looks like Toronto might have dodged a bullet with the whole Manny Ramirez thing because uh, he there was a lot of rumors that he was going to sign even before his lot, the, the suspension that he had. And now that he was coming back, there was a couple rumors that he was going to resign or resign or sign with the Jays. And, uh, everyone on our site was just kind of like, Oh, really don't let that one be true. <laughs> but there's, there's been a running joke that if you hear that the Jays are about to do something, it's probably a good sign that they're not going to since Alex stays pretty tight lipped about it. Yeah. Everything. They come out of nowhere with all the good news, huh? Yeah. <laughs> we just traded Vernon Wells and everyone's going, wait, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, how did that happen? I don't know. I, I, we, <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> I, I, it's it's still inexplicable. Like by far, like whenever you see one of those worst contract in baseball list, it was always Vernon Wells and Barry Zito at the top two of the list. And for somehow some reason, the Angels thought trading for him would make up the, for the fact that they didn't. Who was the off the big offseason guy two years ago? Uh. uh they missed out on somebody, and then they traded for Vernon Walls right afterwards. Oh, it was Carl Crawford. That's who it was. They missed out on Carl Crawford, and then they traded for Vernon Walls, I guess, as a substitute, which turns out to be a pretty comparable substitute last year. Vernon Walls making $24.6 million each of the next three years. Although it looks like, okay, he's getting – okay, the Angels getting like $10 million from the Blue Jays. So that's like $65 million the Angels are still on the hook for. That's pretty mm-hmm. – pretty – that was a crazy trade. It still still Oops. kind of blows the mind. And it didn't matter. Like we we got back Napoli and Rivera in the trade coming back. We traded Napoli for it, like anything after that. It was just it, it didn't matter. You could you could have just not given us anything back. We wouldn't have cared. And meanwhile, the Orioles pull off trades like trade Chris Ray for Kevin Millwood so they can pay Kevin Millwood nine million dollars to have a five ERA. Although that was the Andy McPhail era, so I should should. Should step back on that one a little bit. Dan Duquette's thing seems to be trade two random minor leaguers for like bench filler. Yeah. Uh, we we've gone through the past couple of years having a lot of uh, what seemed like bench filler guys and JoJo Reyes in the. Oh well, yeah, we we oh, yeah. saw a little bit of JoJo Reyes uh, last year. Yeah, with his twenty-eight winless streak or something like that, which was ridiculous. And and I know you guys know about Corey Patterson and just the, there was a lot of players coming through that just seemed kind of like. I'm not sure they should be on a, on our starting lineup at this point. Out alone. on any Maybe. major league baseball team. Yeah, but well, it's tough when I guess the bench guys and the and the bullpen like middle relief guys are always going to be a big part of 
an off season because you have to fill out those roles. You have to find people who can do those jobs. Um, And with a team like Baltimore or Toronto that, excuse me, isn't at the part of the success cycle where they feel they're justified in spending a lot of money on the, the Albert Pujols's and, and the CJ Wilson's and so on of the free agency class that, you know, they, they focus their efforts more on, in Toronto's case, building up what is now one of the premier farm systems in, in baseball. While at the same time, it's like, well, we signed Frank Francisco and Corey Patterson this winter. Yeah. Is Which it, at, at the time, um, and I, I think that's why you didn't. We didn't see a lot of the token. I don't want to call them token signings, but basically what they were this past season was because of the way the CBA changed. We were using a lot of the relievers that they were signing. There, I used we again. Uh, the Chase used a lot of the relievers they were signing and just let them walk after offering offering. Yeah, rack up the, the, comp- the, uh, the compensation. And picks. they racked up a ton over the past two years. They've put a ton into the draft, which, as you mentioned, kind of is kind of panned out as they've rocketed up the uh, the rankings as far as their minor league teams go. This year, we didn't see a lot of that just because of the way the compensation systems changed. So this year, when they went out, they traded for Sergio Santos to be our new closer, who's under a ridiculous team friendly contract for potential the next six years uh they went out and signed francisco cordero for a one-year deal uh just to kind of a stopgap i suppose he is kind of one of the stopgap guys but for a stop stopgap bullpen guy i'm happy with that signing they signed darren oliver who um well the head writer for our blog is fond of saying he's glad that there's somebody's on the team that's as old as him with uh him and omar, omar viscal on the team <laughs> And uh, and it goes goes down the bullpen, and it, it's uh, there's they brought back Jason Frazier, J- Casey Jansen's a f- uh, fan favorite in the bullpen, and then there's the long relief guys with Luis Perez and uh, uh, Carlos Villanueva, and that's a pretty solid bullpen, much better than what we had last year in any case. Yeah, well, none of those are gonna be sexy moves, but Andrew and I have both looked on Camden chat about one thing that hurt the Orioles in, well, really probably the entire time they've been bad but especially last year was the guys that were on the Orioles and that were bad were just really just terrible and if you if you can even replace those guys with just you know the, the theoretical replacement level player if, if your replacement player is actually a replacement level player the level of improvement that could bring on the Orioles was what did you decide about improving the bench Andrew was that like uh, 20, 20 runs like- or something yeah, some some like that. Twenty to thirty runs. Which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but it at least saves you a ton of headaches when it's not Felix PA going out there and hitting one fifty or whatever. While yeah. while seeming to have completely no idea of how to track a line drive or a fly ball. <laughs> well, this year on our bench we got Jeff Mathis and that made everybody quite happy. Oh. Well, well, you had Mike Napoli, and you traded him away. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I hope he's not the starter, at least. How's Kevin Gregg doing for you guys? Oh, yeah. See, we've reached, <laughs> this interview is over. We've reached the back-and-forth sniping part of this uh, podcast. So, Actually, I think we're getting right about where the time comes to wrap it up anyway. So, That's probably a good time before we start deciding we want to murder one another. So, 
Johnny, um, I but... always try and plug our Twitter on this podcast. Do you have a Twitter you would like to plug on the podcast? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, you can follow. There's a, there's a few for the for the site. There's uh, at Bluebird Banter is the main one for the site. My personal one is at Mini Basher. I don't know where I got the name, but that's the name that it's at currently. Um, and uh, let's see. There's a few other on the site. But I don't remember them all off the top of my head. We've got a couple other writers for the site. Well, well, Minor Leaguer. I would recommend giving our user Minor Leaguer his uh, his feed to follow. But I can't remember if it's at Minor underscore Leaguer or if he put through a BBB in there for. Well, I will banter. try and put that up when we post and and link. So if people Orioles fans who are listening would like to get some Blue Jays fan perspectives along the lines of what Andrew and I give to you, they can uh, they can follow them. And Andrew, of course, is at Gibson Andrew, and I am at Eat More SK, SK like the hot dogs. Taste the difference quality makes. I don't get paid to say that. I really should find a way to do that, though. That would be good. You should. That'd be awesome. It would be pretty awesome. But, uh, you know, whatever. So, the Orioles, they're playing the Blue Jays this weekend. Maybe they can win one game. That'd be good. Not, not have this losing streak continue. Although, are you guys actually on a losing? Oh, you you yeah, are. You got, got swept by the Yankees after sweeping the Twins. So, you know, maybe the Blue Jays are somewhere in between those two uh, teams and talent. So, that'll make it a little easier to to peel off a game. Probably not the one started by Brian Mattis. Although, who knows? Oh, you don't think he's going to turn it around this year? Well. That would take another 30 minutes of debating that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can remember very, quite visibly a couple of years ago being jealous of the, all the pitching prospects that you guys had coming up with Chris Tillman, uh, Arietta, Matsis, um, and I think there was somebody else too coming up. Well, we had or, might have just been those. Yeah, I think it was yeah. Sort of tertiary to those guys. Uh, and I can remember thinking, man, I wish we had some prospects like that. And then it just kind of hasn't panned out for you guys. I felt awful. Well, and my fantasy team felt awful too because I had a couple of them for prospects. Yeah, tell us about it. So yeah. whatever whatever could go wrong. Well, I don't want to say everything that could have gone wrong did because knock on wood, there hasn't been like injuries except for no. Zach Britton's shoulder currently. But That's why the famous sabermetric saying is there is no such thing. As a pitching prospect. In step or whatever. In step. So that's life. Life's a little bit better in, in Toronto Blue Jays fan land, but not that much yet, I guess. Nah, we, we, we still got to climb over the Red Sox, Rays, and Yankees. 90, so. 92 wins from your most optimistic fans. Uh, I, will, I will hope that they are not completely crushed by the, <laughs> by the reality of the season. Because Andrew and I know what it's like to be crushed. Probably both two years ago. I don't know what it's like not to be crushed. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's I, where I'm, I'm, at. I'm also a Leaf fan, if you guys know anything about hockey. I, I know quite often how much it is to be depressed all the time. So, it's well, just sad. That's life. So, Johnny, thanks for coming on tonight. We'll try and get you on sometime later in the season. Maybe we can, Maybe you can gloat about how you're getting better and the Orioles aren't, or we can all commiserate together if, uh, if you're... Just curse the Yankees. And yeah, stuff. curse the Yankees. That's always good. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. So he's our he's our counterpart from BluebirdBanter.com. He's Johnny G on that site. And for Andrew Gibson, I am Mark Brown. We're bringing you Camden Cast, and we are out.